Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Welcome back to my faithful listeners, and a big welcome to any new listeners to the podcast today. My podcast exists to help people heal from all kinds of abuse and trauma. It's particularly geared towards Christians who were abused in the church. That is my personal background. On this show, we listen to a lot of survivor stories. I try to provide a variety of different backgrounds and experiences because frankly, we're all different, right? No one heals the same way. And you might not be able to relate to one guest story, but perhaps another guest story will really resonate with you and even inspire you on your journey towards healing. So that is my hope and prayer for you listeners. I get lots of requests to come on my show. I never have a particular guest on here just to get more downloads, ratings, or to be controversial. I do welcome guests on here that are different than me in more ways than one. You and I do not have to agree on doctrine or politics or anything else to have a conversation. Heck, my husband and I have different doctrinal positions. The requirements to be on my show are, one, profess to be a Christian, and we are all on different stages of our Christian journey, or we may be questioning our faith. That's okay. Two, you are willing to share your abuse story honestly. Three, be nice and respectful. Four, no politics on this show. That's not what this show is about. There are plenty of other podcasts to listen to for that. So that's it. So contact me if you want to be on the show and tell your story. Keep in mind what I said as I introduce my guest today. She may have a different perspective or experience than you, but I hope you will listen to her abuse story with empathy and willingness to understand the pain that she has experienced on her journey. I always tell the folks that you can skip to the next episode if you're not comfortable with the subject matter. That's okay. The Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford is a civil rights attorney representing society's most marginalized. An Episcopal priest, she earned her Doctor of Ministry in Political Theology from Pacific School of Religion. Dr. Ledford founded Political Theology Matters, LLC, to help the faithful develop public theology mission for greater social justice. She writes, speaks, teaches, and preaches about how to do political theology, all while protected by the First Amendment. Now, we're not really going to talk much about the political side of her story today. She was raised in a Baptist church and was called to preach when she was in her teens, but she didn't fulfill her calling until she was around 40. So we're going to hear about her uh, suffering and injustices during the earlier part of her life. I've heard her talk on other podcasts, and she is a delightful, funny lady, passionate about her faith and mission. So enjoy my conversation with Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford. Welcome, Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, to the show. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Delighted well, to have you. you. Thank you so much, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank oh. you for the invitation. I've listened to numerous podcasts that you've been on, and you have such a unique and fascinating career path. You're an ordained minister and a lawyer. Wow. Yes. So on the surface, that sounds like there'd be opposite careers, but are there similarities to that? Oh, there's, uh, there's a lot of crossover between lawyering and being a priest or pastor. Um, you know, in both instances, we read and interpret text, and then we, we translate it, uh, and we present it to somebody else, you know, in a persuasive way. So if you're a lawyer, you're reading statutes, and you're uh, presenting to a judge or jury, and if you're uh, a pastor, you're reading biblical texts and developing a sermon and presenting that to your congregation. So there, the crossover is very, very close. It's all about words. And um, I was a Scrabble kid. Wow. So, and I, you know, I just love Scrabble. And uh, so it, it was an easy crossover for me to make. I initially, as a, a teenager, sensed a call to ordained ministry. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was not seeing women at the pulpit and the altar. Um, and so I decided to go into something where I could still help people. So I went into law. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to diving into more of your personal story of your early years and your faith journey. So I was raised Catholic and I started going to the Baptist church when I was 18. So we definitely have that history in common. So mm -hmm. what, what kind of childhood did you have? Uh, I was always a church kid. We always uh, went to church in the Baptist tradition. Uh, you know, there's a rosebud on the pulpit when, when, you're, when a couple has a baby. Uh, and my mom had that pressed rosebud uh, for both me and my brother. Uh, we were raised in the American tradition, which was uh, more open-minded in um, uh, more progressive, I think, than many of the various Baptist uh, flavors. Um, I was in choir and, you know, the youth group and all that kind of stuff. And it was all very important to me from a young age. I was baptized when I was nine. And, um, uh, but then when I hit my teens, I also had another uh, epiphany about myself, and that was when I started the coming out process. So what was your relationship with God at the time? I, I think that I've always felt God's presence uh, very closely. It's hard to explain, but I, I did feel strongly that God was talking to me about being a pastor. But I, was, I just didn't know how I would do that because there, it just wasn't open to us as women. And certainly we weren't being invited. So um, I just kept, you know, moving on. And I, I, then I went to college and I decided to study law because I figured that would be a great way uh, to help people who were struggling. Definitely. And that's why, I be, that's why I became a civil rights attorney. So you were treated really poorly by the church when you did come out? Well, I was, you know, basically given the choice of, well, you can be a Christian or you can be whatever you are, said pejoratively, uh, but you cannot be both. Hmm. So I was given this uh, untenable choice of my faith or who I am. So, and I, and I had a big uh, falling out with God, as it were. I, I got very angry and uh, yelling and shouting and, you know, why, why did you do this to me? And what am I supposed to do with my call? Um, all those kinds of things. But what's interesting is, is I always had a sense that God made me this way, which uh, later was a form of salvation, a form, a form of understanding that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. 
and that there was something special to be discovered here mm -hmm. uh, within me. Uh, and God was very much at the center of it. So I left that church tradition and I basically kind of floated while I was in college. And then in my sophomore year, I met my now wife of 40 years next year. 40 years, that's a long time. How did yeah. you meet? Uh, we met at, at school, at college. Um, and that, as they say, was that. <laughs> and so she's, been... in, she's in um, social activism as well? She is. Um, she is. Uh, she works in uh, to eradicate employment discrimination. Wow! And uh, I'm very proud of her and the work that she does. We've both been devoted to social justice efforts our whole life together, and so and that has created, of course, a very special and common bond between us. So, and we went through a lot in our own suffrage. Um, being considered second second class citizens, only being to being able to marry at the thirty uh, second year of our relationship, uh, we would have married as soon as possible. We did have a ceremony uh, in, to celebrate our tenth anniversary, which mm -hmm. created quite the stir. Uh, that's a story probably for another time. But um, the, were your our, family? Were your parents? Um, actually, there? our family and our parents were there, and they were very supportive, but it the story broke in the media, and people drove from all over the place to come and protest the, at the church and ca cause a big ruckus. Yeah, this was in 1992. Oh. So, um, like I said, that's that's probably fodder for another another session. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I'm glad to hear that your parents were at least there. Yep, my parents were all there um, in, in varying degrees of happiness. I would say my dad was probably the least happy, but um, we had a great night. We had a really wonderful night. And instead of tinking glasses, each, uh, each of our guest tables stood up and sang a show tune. Oh, I love show tunes. What did you <laughs> sing? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I'm just a girl that can't say no. That was sung by a table of gay men. It was hysterical. Um, I just met a girl named Marcia from West Side Story. Ooh, uh, yeah. I so, love West Side Story. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and frankly, I think a lot of people were relieved because we'd been threatened, and you know, so we changed the location and kept everything under wraps. Now, we definitely talked before the show about problems with the church and yeah what do you think is the biggest problem in our church communities when it comes to authentic christianity patriarchy yeah yeah that's a big problem <laughs> well the root of homophobia is sexism um women aren't taken seriously because uh they're not they lack something support supposedly um and this threatens the power structure now, Jesus attracted the outcast of his society when he walked this earth. Yes. I mean, how can the church be more like Jesus? Well, first of all, we have to move away from the epistles and the rules and regulations about who's in and who's out. And we have to go back to the Gospels. I really think that's a major part of this. Mm -hmm. We have to go back and look at the stories of redemption that Jesus uh, provided us uh, every day of his ministry, raising the widow from raising the widow's son from the dead to restore her to community. Because without that connection, um, she was uh, sort of flapping in the wind, um, recognizing that uh, people who are sick need to be healed mm -hmm. instead of ostracizing them. Right. Feeding people when they're hungry, showing mercy, all of the things that are included in divine grace. I think that's what we have to move back to. Instead, well, instead of worrying about who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. Right. Go back to the basics. I mean, because you read yeah. the Gospels when Jesus was here, he ministered to women more than yes. anybody 
Yes. The yeah. Gospel of Luke is rife with examples of Jesus caring for and restoring women to wholeness and to uh, participation in the society. Mm -hmm. um, you know, constantly encouraging us to work to eradicate injustice. Uh, the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Mm -hmm. Constantly asking for justice. Jesus was, you know, all about fairness and equality and sharing. Uh, and I think that's, that's where our disconnect lies, is it's about power. It's about male power. And it's about um, who's uh, in control of whom. Even even the Pharisees tried to push Jesus around, right? With their religious rules, and he set them in their place. Yes, um, over and over again, he did that. You know, they would try and set a trap for him, and then he outtrapped them. Uh, because we get it, it. I use sort of a lawyer's uh, argument here. You know, there's. In the law, we're always worried about substantive due process and procedural due process. And the substantive part is about what the law says. Mm -hmm. And the procedural part is about how we bring a case to trial, how, how we adjudicate that case. And so I, I like to use that analogy that we are hung up on the procedural due process. We are hung up on the rules and regulations versus embracing the substantive part, the grace, the spirit of the law. And that's that's a big problem. Yeah, Jesus loved people. And yes. He loved people and, and accepted them as they were. Right. He did not, you know, tell them to go fly a kite because, oh, well, you're not dressed the right way. Or, right. You know. Right. Exactly. So I think that's what the main problem is with re respect to the church. I think patriarchy and racism. Um, and those two have been, you know, in league with one another since uh, 80 years before the country was founded. Mm -hmm. You know, we've always had slavery in the United States uh, from the beginning of the country. We had it, is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. 1619 until 1865. Yeah, um, slavery, and, slavery is in every country of the world, unfortunately. You know, and the United States certainly isn't, or shouldn't be proud of their heritage of slavery either. It's an embarrassment. And you have a project you mentioned that you're involved with, the Lazarus Lives Project. Tell us more about that. Um, I founded that uh, in seminary uh, a few years ago already, 10 years ago. Um, and it's designed to be a chaplaincy for LGBTQ youth in, the, um, in, a, in an urban environment, urban setting. Um, it's almost all African-American kids that are involved in it. And very often, uh, the, the Black church is still pretty stridently homophobic and um, when kids come out or they're discovered, very often uh, the kids are put out of the house, mm -hmm. um, often at the behest of their pastor. I'm so very sorry and ashamed to say that. Um, and then they're left to fend for themselves on the mean streets of the city. So guess what do you think they end up doing? Sex work. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's dangerous. And if, particularly if you are a trans woman, um, it's, it can be deadly on the streets for young trans women of color. Um, and so I started this to provide some encouragement and uh, to address the spiritual abuse that occurs in the church, any church, that rejects young people because of their sexual orientation, uh, their gender expression, their gender identity. And uh, it's a way to help them see that they don't have that, they, they don't have to put up with that choice that I was given 
that they are now being given that they have to choose between their faith and who they are. Right. Um, and uh, there's a, a really important story that goes behind founding Lazarus Lives. I went over to the youth center and I was, I would drop, do drop-in hours and just, you know, sit and talk to the young people and want and offer them prayers or, you know, sometimes counseling, whatever. And I was walking up the stairs to their, uh, the room where they dance. They vogued, they vogue up there. <laughs> uh, and it's, I love watching it. It's just fascinating. And it's so beautiful. And at the top was a whiteboard at the top of the stairs, a great big whiteboard. And there was a question written in cursive at the top. How are you feeling today? And there was one, there was one word written on it in block letters centered both ways. And it was the word abomination. Mm. I feel like an abomination today. And I thought to myself, son of a Gunderson. And I'll be honest and say that's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it's the same thing, different decade. And I'll be darned if I'm going to, you know, just sit silently while these kids struggle for their spiritual life and health. Mm -hmm. So that's how it got started. And we have a Facebook page and you're welcome to go check it out. And I try to post really uplifting um, encouraging things. I also post warnings and uh, stuff about laws that are being proposed and things like that so that uh, our constituency can say, stay informed about what's happening in their world and how it's going to affect them. Well, I've heard that the LGBT community, especially the young people, they have a high rate of suicide oh, yes. because mm -hmm. of this. And I just believe everybody needs love and to be accepted for who they are because none of right. us are perfect. Right. And, you know, what, what advice would you give to somebody listening who has a child who just came out? What mm -hmm. would you advise them to do? How would you advise them to move forward with their child so they don't damage the relationship with their kid yeah. or, you know... Um, the kid isn't kicked out of the house. Yeah. Well, number one, that's important. Not uh, telling the kids that he or she is no longer welcome. I think that level of rejection and abandonment can scar a person for the rest of their lives. And so uh, it's really important to show love and empathy don't worry about, oh, what about my grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. That's not the time to be worrying about that. This is about this young person who has real, revealed something that's very hard. It's very hard, number one, to talk about your parent, talk to your parents about your, you know, your sex attraction, whether you're straight or gay. So it's a, it takes a tremendous leap of faith on their part to come forward and tell you. Um, so embrace that as a gift of honesty of the utmost kind. It's, it's a rare moment indeed when kids will, you know, just come clean like that and just say it like it is. So that's my first bit of advice and hug them and love them, show affection to them as you normally would, you know, uh, that's genuine. Um, and if you're upset, save your upsetness for your, you know, when you're in your own bedroom and you have some privacy and whatnot. And then I'll recommend a couple of books. Um, I will put these uh, in an email to Diana and the listeners can uh, take a look at the show notes when the show goes up and mm -hmm. you'll be able to find some of these, find these resources. Um, but that's, that's the first thing is just show love and thank, thank them for being honest and sharing something so incredibly deep because they're scared out of their mm, minds. Yeah. I can't tell you, um, even though it seems like our, you know, our society is so much more accepting that, that moment, that fragile moment, when you finally say it out loud to your parents it's like unringing the bell. You can never get it back and you have no idea what's going to happen right after it. And it is 
terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying for the parents to hear too, if they're unprepared and, um, you know, they are, they object uh, to open LGBT expression. That's a separate issue. We can deal with all of that stuff later. We can mm-hmm. deal with all of that yeah. stuff later. We can get, we can do some counseling. And I don't mean conversion therapy counseling. I mean, you know, learning about how sexual orientation forms, how, how it is innate in us, what uh, psychological experts say. No, it's not because you were a terrible parent. Um, yes, your child can still be a, a mother or a father. Um, you know, there are many, many obstacles that can be overcome, but that initial reaction where that child knows you have their back is, is the good book says, a price above rubies. You cannot, mm. you cannot put a value on how important that is. Yes. And if you're, you know, if you're struggling with this, you'll, uh, Diana will have my email and you can send me a note. I'm happy to talk to you about it. Um, Oh, you know. you're, you're proof with your ministry that, that you can love Jesus and be who you are in Christ. Right. Right. And frankly, I don't know who I would be without Jesus. Right. Where and would I, I be without Jesus? I don't know. Right. I, and I don't know who, who I would be without Linda and the life we've built together. And it's blessed by God. I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt of that. Yeah. And we made vows to one another before God and our company. So that counts for a lot. Yeah, it does. Vows are vows. Vows are vows. Correct. And we talked before the show about my pet peeve with the church is they're looking at everybody else's, you know, stuff that's going on in their life, but they're not, they're not dealing with their own junk in their own home. Yeah. You know? And that drives me up the wall. Yep. Okay. Yeah, the the log in your eye. Remove the log in your eye, as Jesus <laughs> says. You know? Yeah, you can't complain about, you know, gay marriage and what the, the LGBT community is doing when the church has 50% divorce rate among the right. heterosexuals. Hey, right. fix that. Yeah. Mind, your own, mind your own house first, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your faith intersects your social justice missions and yeah. areas of immigration, LGBT, racial equality, and sex trafficking. Yes. Now, we talk a lot about so- sex trafficking here on this podcast, so I would really like to hear uh, about what you think in your experience with sex trafficked victims? Well, uh, that's an open-ended question. And so <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start by saying, um, when I was in seminary in, in Berkeley, California, I became aware of an organization called SAGE, which helps traffic, trafficked women get out of their situation and rebuild their lives and, mm-hmm. and move on. And they're quite an extraordinary group. And I learned so much. I was very moved by the stories that I heard um, and the services that they offer. And uh, my field ministry, when you're a seminarian, you have to work in various churches to get experience at, at the congregational level. And mine was in Oakland. And uh, a lot of trafficking goes on there, lots of prostitution, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty bad. So I, I became sort of introduced in some ways to a lot about what goes on with sex trafficking. We have not developed the mission as much yet as we plan to. But we, pro- we plan to provide resources. I think one of the most important things that we as uh, members of society can do to help eradicate trafficking is to learn the signs. You know, learn what to look for when you're uh, at a restroom on the interstate and you see a woman who's undernourished and scared and maybe doesn't speak any English at all and doesn't know where she is and is quite clearly, you know, um, something is clearly off. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's when, and then you kind of watch and see what kind of a vehicle she gets in. And, you know, is, is she in a van? Is she in something that transports a lot of people? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you call the police. Um, and, you know, you don't get directly involved, but you just, we are all, we're out there all over the place. Uh, the traffickers cannot get away from us, the public, you know, because mm-hmm. we're everywhere. And if we teach people to be more aware of right. the signs, um, we can do a lot to help law enforcement uh, catch these guys and shut them down and get these women freed. And and when I say that, I'm talking specifically about women being sex, well, women and men being sex trafficked and children, uh, but also uh, laborers, you know, people yes. who are being trafficked as uh, basically human slaves. So um, it's a really important area that we're, you know, getting into. Um, and I also, I think domestic violence is also something we need to be much, much more aware of and look mm-hmm. for the signs of battering when we're out and about, um, I had my collar on one day and a woman came up to me and told me that um, she was in an abusive relationship and she needed help. Wow. And, um, you know, uh, and so I got her some phone numbers and, and we, we got her some assistance immediately. Uh, and fortunately, I was in my community and I knew who to call and all of that. Um, and, you know, it's not usually that obvious. It was because I had on a clerical collar. But at the same time, um, people who are in trouble, in danger, are looking for an out, and they're looking for somebody to notice. Yes, just to be um, a human being. Exactly. I saw a video of a woman who was being abused, um, and she had to take her pet to the hospital, to the vet, and uh, her abuser was with her, and. Um, she was able to slip a note to the vet tech and she said, he's got a gun and I'm scared to death. Good for her. And those women, God love them, called the cops and got him in there and got him out of there and took that gun away from him. So it it takes all of us, you know, uh, to participate in eradicating this kind of abuse. Yeah, just say something. People just say, if you see involved. something, say something. Exactly. Well, most people think of sex trafficking, trafficking as overseas in yes. Asian countries, but it happens right here in our backyard. It happens right under our noses. And mm-hmm. I live in Michigan at the intersection of uh, I-75 and 8090. 8090 goes across the country and 75 goes from Michigan to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the most... Uh, you know, it's one of the greatest hubs for exchanging trafficked persons in the country. It yes. intersects right at the heartland, east and west and north and south. Yeah, I'm like uh, a couple hours from the Mexican border. And so we get a ton of trafficking victims here. Mm-hmm. And we we had the Super Bowl here once. Right. We have the PGA here every year. We've got a ton of golf courses and People don't realize there's a huge amount of sex trafficking going on with the Super Bowl and the, oh, yes. the sports events like PGA. I've seen it. I've heard that the Super Bowl Sunday is the most heavily sex trafficked day of the year. It is. Yeah. It's pathetic. It's, uh, it's beyond words is what yeah. it is. It's patriarchy. So what I love about your mission is that you discuss really difficult topics when it comes to caring for these vulnerable and oppressed folks in our communities. You know, can, communicating truths in a logical and respectful way. How can we talk to each other about these things that we're passionate about mm-hmm. without resorting to being nasty and hateful? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to say one thing about the Lazarus Lives Project and mm-hmm. about Political Theology Matters. Mm-hmm. Our, our four areas of mission are racial, racial reconciliation, immigration reform, LGBTQI inclusion, and the eradication of uh, human trafficking and domestic violence. We, we came to the, uh, the agreement on those issues as an extension of that uh, wounded healer 
concept that I mentioned earlier. And I mm -hmm. just wanted to underscore that we all have endured some kind of pain or uh, trauma or difficult situation that has both hurt and damaged us, but also has equipped us with invaluable knowledge to use to help others and in so doing to heal ourselves even more. And so I just throw that out, you know, it, it's, it's not that there's necessarily anything special about uh, what I'm doing. I, I've just been able to take that uh, bad stuff and turn it into a silver lining in a way that works for me. And I think that a lot of us can do this. Mm -hmm. So I'm just throwing that out there as a, a line of encouragement, if you will. Well, I appreciate um, that. Yeah. Um, so talking to each other. Okay. Here, here is uh, Marsha's sort of simple rules for talking to people with whom we disagree. I think the measure, you know, the gap between where we are is really super important. And I'm going to preface this by saying uh, the Episcopal Church has a free course on what is called civil discourse. Mm -hmm. And I'll send the link to Diana and you can go there and click. And we have a program for individuals and we have a program for groups. So if you just want to do it yourself, you can do that. But if you know of a group that would be into it and would do it together, you can do it that way. I think the group experience is often uh, more rich uh, just because there's more interaction and you hear other people's ideas and so on. But it's a five-week course. It's absolutely free. You can do it in your, you know, in your own time. There's, there's no um, you know, set framework. The structure is very easy. So you can do it in five days or five weeks or five whatever. Mm -hmm. And in that, you learn the basic tenets of discourse, like deep listening. It's more important to hear than to be heard when we engage in civil discourse. It's important not to judge. It's important not to uh, win. You know, it's not about being right. It's about being right there. Mm -hmm. um, so these are some of the examples that you'll learn in the course. And I would say, uh, be careful with trying to talk to family. I generally don't recommend it. Because when you are talking to somebody at arm's length, um, it doesn't trigger as many things automatically. Right. And if it gets to be too much, you can walk away and it's no big deal. But it's a lot harder to walk away from your favorite Aunt Minnie if she's really ticked you off, right? Right. <laughs> okay, let somebody else talk to your family from arm's length. And you, you know, work on just maintaining relationships. I'm having this problem right now with some of my elders with whom we disagree, shall I say, vehemently uh, mm -hmm. on politics. Mm -hmm. And it, ha it can be very, it can really push people's buttons when, you know, we're related to them and we love them. Right. So just back off, don't engage and have an agreement. Agree to disagree and to talk about other stuff. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. And also, if, if the gap is like this, you can find some more common ground than when the gap, you know, starts getting like exactly. this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And then we start going off the scale, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the chances of uh, meeting each other somewhere in that movable middle reduce tremendously as we are more and more apart. So, um, you know, there are some people right now that I'm not going to try to engage right. um, because it's not going to do either of us any good. And um, I give you an example. A friend of mine was trying to do a Bible study um, and, and work on uh, LGBTQ acceptance with this group. Um, he's a fellow seminarian of mine. And he was having a terrible time, you know, with the homophobia and the, the proof texting, you know, jumping from verse to verse to verse to prove your point that is taken completely out of context. And he called me because he was upset. And he said, I, I just don't get it. I don't get what the disconnect is. And I said, uh, none of us likes to change. And uh, what you're looking at is you're asking people to make a giant paradigm shift. And they are living in a world where, where they are expressing the theology that was embedded in them as children. 
and they've been living with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's important to them. It's a pillar of their foundation. And now you're asking them to just say, oh, I, you know, that was wrong all along. It doesn't work like that. People change their paradigm when somebody dear to them is affected. When the, fav- when the favorite nephew comes out, now what do you do? Because you have basically two choices. You can reject the kid and keep the embedded theology, or you can work to uh, uh, move your paradigm, shift your paradigm, and that's a big, tall order. But you'll do it to keep that boy in your life, mm-hmm. you know, to keep that... that uh, young man, that gay nephew of yours in your life because he means that much. So yes. we, we need to keep that in mind when we're trying to talk to people that we maybe don't know very well about very difficult topics and uh, topics in which people are very, very invested. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think civil discourse training can really, really help. It sounds like a great resource. It is a great resource. I hope everybody jumps on it and goes and gets the program. I, um, I'll have to say that I've had some delightful conversations with my gay cousin, which were, they were much easier than my conversations with one of my siblings who is complete opposite on the political spectrum as me. Mm-hmm. And we, my sibling would, we would fight pretty pretty hard but we've learned to okay we're not going to talk about this particular part mm-hmm. let's agree to disagree mm-hmm. i love you you're my you're my sibling i care about you mm-hmm. we have all these things over here that we have in common that that we can talk about right yeah right so i try and focus on that I've, yeah. I've had to learn some some lessons because I, I wasn't talking to a couple family members for like seven years yeah. <laughs> over politics. And it's that really is is terrible because you don't know. We don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. Right. But we're I think so many of us are in this boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. many. And, you know, I have to be careful. I have an uh, elder in my life who's, uh, you know not going to be 92 years old. And the fact of the matter is, is I don't know. I've had that same thought you have. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do we want to spend our last moments with our loved one arguing and fighting? No, no, I do not. Right. And so I've just, I just don't engage. Right. And I don't talk about my work. You don't have to. Right. I don't talk about what I'm doing because I don't want to upset him and I don't want to get into an argument and I don't want to get mad at him. (laughs) Right. You know, I don't want to be angry with him. My husband and I don't even agree on biblical doctrines. He has some doctrines that are quite different than mine. And he's Mm -hmm. very passionate about those. And we live in the same house and Mm -hmm. i I'm I'm acknowledging that this is an important an important doctrine for you and a, an important belief and you definitely can believe this. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could agree that I'm not going to uh, subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. So it can happen. We get along terrific. <laughs> yeah, it, it it can. It takes discipline. And it takes uh, some maturity and some integrity yeah, to do maturity. that. It's it's not easy. It's not easy, maturity, but it can be done. Maturity. That's but <laughs> so so to sum up, Diana, I would say to everybody: pick your battles. You know, decide which ditch you're going to die in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 give yourself a break. Do just do your best. That's all you can do. And love your people. And love your people. And love, love your people. people. So I have certainly been enjoying the social media posts that you have filled with prayers and encouraging Bible verses. Can you share some of your favorites with our listeners? 
Maybe like a benediction. Ooh. Wow. I wish I would have written down the one I really liked. Yeah, I wish you had too. Do you remember when it was? It was long. It had a purple background and it was, it wasn't an Irish prayer. It was some other kind of, it was a formal, formal prayer of some sort. Okay. Don't might have been from the, it might have been from our book of common prayer. That's usually, they're usually about five sentences long. They're called collects. Um, I think aside from what happens in the gospels, I would have to go to St. Paul and say, and I'm not going to get this. This is a paraphrase. Okay. For we are all one body and we, we make up the parts of the body and we, we complement one another. And uh, Paul loves to ask questions that he's going to answer himself. And he does that in this passage. And he says, for if the body were all I, where would the hearing be? And it speaks to the beauty of the body of Christ. We, the baptized, who work together to usher in the reign of God together, using our complementary skills and abilities, our life experiences, our woundedness, all of those things that we bring together to work for the greater good. And I, th I think that inspires me probably more than just about anything else. You can't go wrong with St. Paul, that's for sure. No, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> now, you have a book that you'd like to tell the listeners about. Well, yes, uh, I have a, a book coming up. Uh, hopefully, uh, the release will be the end of the year, and I'll let you know when it's available. But it is a how-to manual for uh, the faithful to voice their faith-based uh, understandings, their values that are important to them in the public square uh, to work for greater social justice. And it's, uh, I think it's unique in that it is, it talks a lot about theology, but it also talks about the First Amendment. And it mm -hmm. provides lots of examples of, you know, what you can do to get involved in it, your level of comfort, uh, which hopefully will grow. Well, I'm glad you mentioned so. that comfort part. Yeah, we're, we're not all uh, the kind of activists that are out there um, right. amongst the crowds and with right. the picket signs. So right. So and people say that to me. They'll say, "Well, I don't want to get on the front line of a protest," and I say, "That's okay. You don't have to, uh, because we need people who are graphic designers and mm -hmm. you know make make flyers and mm -hmm. put flyers all over town and um, you know." do all the behind the scene kinds of things that need to happen to make an event work. Right, your we representatives. Need, yeah, and we need the predominantly extroverts up in the front, you know, doing their thing. And of course, uh, that would be me. Um, <laughs> but we can't really do one without the other. You know, we're, we, this is how we work together to employ our skills and experience uh, and create power, which is what community organizing is all about. We create a public power to send messages that change is necessary or we have to stop doing something or whatever it is. So this will hopefully, this book will uh, equip the faithful um, to speak their faith. And when I say that, I mean, it, from an interfaith perspective, I live outside of Detroit, Michigan. We have one of the, the largest Muslim Arab population in the world outside mm. of the Middle East. Wow. And so I would be remiss in, in not having an, uh, an Abrahamic approach. And even greater than that, we have a large Jewish community. We have, you know, Jains and Sikhs and mm -hmm. Hindus and all kinds of folks here in the metropolitan area. And so I'm a big believer in interfaith coalitions, ecumenical Christian coalitions and mm -hmm. interfaith. So we'll talk about all that stuff in the book. Well, I look forward to reading it. All right. Well, I'll let you know when it when it's ready. Very good. Okay. Now, how can the listeners connect with you and your resources? Um, I will give my uh, my website first, and uh, that is uh, www.politicaltheologymatters.com. 
Facebook.com. I'll say it twice. PoliticalTheologyMatters.com. And you can email me at Marcia, M-A-R-C-I-A, at M, as in Marcia, I-P-T-M, again, Marcia, dot com. So that's Marcia at M-I-P-T-M dot com. And that'll be in the show notes. Yeah, you bet. And that'll be in the show notes. Awesome. Well, this has been a delightful conversation filled with lots of information and inspiration. And I appreciate you coming on the show today and ministering to our listeners. God bless you. Well, God bless you too. I'm so thankful for your ministry. What you're doing is so important. And uh, it's just been a real delight. And I hope to hear from listeners. Uh, Feel free to contact me anytime. Well, thanks everybody for listening today. Wasn't she great? I hope that you'll take advantage of the valuable resources that she's provided today. Everyone needs Jesus. And Jesus told us to go out and preach the gospel to everyone, not just the ones that we agree with, not just the ones that are in our circle, but everyone. So go out there and show some compassion and love for those around you this week. Marsha is a compassionate and safe person to talk to, as you can see. Maybe you know somebody that's struggling with some of these things that we talked about today, please share this information with somebody that needs it. I will have all of the information that she discussed in the show notes for you. We will see you next week. So until then, remember that you are no longer a victim. You are victorious. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.